Catholic Church. The reading today is from Genesis 45, 16 to 46, 7. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh's and all his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Tell your brothers, do this, load your animals and return to the land of Canaan, and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you can enjoy the fat of the land. You are also directed to tell them, do this, take some carts from Egypt for your children and your wives, and get your father and come. Never mind about your belongings, because the best of all Egypt will be yours. So the sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them carts as Pharaoh had commanded, and he also gave them provision for the journey. To each of them he gave new clothing, but to Benjamin he gave three hundred shekels of silver and five sets of clothes. And this is what he sent to his father, ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provision for his journey. They sent his brothers away and as they were leaving he said to them, Don't quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned and did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father. He said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's son took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the cart that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. They also took with them their livestock and possessions they had acquired in Canaan, and Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt. He took with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons, and his daughters and granddaughters, all of his offspring. Thanks, Assy. Good morning, everybody. Uh, yes, uh, it's great to be continuing on in our series in uh, Genesis. Uh, I'm going to pray. Um, but first I'm going to remove this knife. Uh, for some reason, I'm not sure why it's there. It's got nothing to do with this morning. <laughs> Let's talk to God. Gracious Father, thank you so much for uh, the Bible. Thank you for particularly the book of Genesis and for Moses who wrote it and your Holy Spirit who inspired him. Thank you that it's been preserved down through the years such that we might have a record, a faithful record of your dealings with your ancient people and through that, 
uh, see how you have blessed us uh, in and through your dealings with them, ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And we ask that by virtue of this, our faith in him would grow. And we pray this in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard a poem uh, the other day. It's from a lady called Megan Powell de Toy. Uh, that's her there. Uh, she's on a Christian podcast with uh, Michael Jensen. Uh, if you know him, it's a podcast called All Due Respect. Uh, anyway, on this uh, podcast, one of these episodes that I was listening to, she spoke about how she miscarried her first child on Good Friday. She later ended up writing a poem about that, about that and the experience of Easter Saturday. And it's a powerful poem. Here's the poem. Saturday dawned to the continued presence of death and to an ache of absence, tomb filled, womb emptied. An age-long pregnant anticipation, unborn in blood, hopes laughed at by heaven, tomb full, womb empty. The day of rest became a day of pause, months suspended on a restless Sabbath. Tomb still full, sorry, tomb still full, womb still empty. I sit in the locked room of my fear, doubting. At the door, prayers pile up for an empty tomb and a quickened womb. It's powerful, isn't it? Capture something, I think, powerfully, the link between, that, that many of us find, the link between our grief and God. As our hurts and our fears come up against our faith and our hope. And this is where I reckon Jacob is at the story in Genesis so far. He doesn't know that his son of 13 years, Joseph, is alive. He's been missing, thought to be dead. He doesn't know that his other sons have just reconciled with Joseph, as we touched on in last week's passage in Egypt. He doesn't know that Pharaoh himself has jumped in on the joy of that reconciliation, told the brothers to go back home to their dad, to Jacob, and then to bring the whole family back to live safely in Egypt. All he knows is God's allowed Joseph to disappear. And now he's had to let go of his precious youngest son, Benjamin, to let him go so he could go to Egypt with his brothers to get more grain, which they desperately needed because they're in a famine. He's probably worried sick. And we haven't seen him in the last little bit in Genesis praying or consulting with God throughout all this. And so when the brothers rock up back in Canaan, you know, happy as Larry, uh, he's a little sceptical. Which brings us to our passage today. And I think something of God's answer to the grief-stricken, to the sceptical and to the hopeless. God's answer, firstly, uh, as Hope blossoms with a son back from the dead. Secondly, uh, in the wonderful promise, in all God's promises, that is of God being with his people. And finally, to savour this hope and promise by numbering God's blessings. So that's where uh, we're going to go in the uh, passage today. Three things on the way out of grief and hopelessness. So first up, the blossoming of hope. As Jacob's sons rock up and uh, tell him of the wonderful news about his lost son, 
uh, Joseph. So chapter 45 from verse 25, we read it earlier. So they went up to Egypt, up out of Egypt, and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He didn't believe him. He didn't believe them. Now, the word stunned there, it's a pretty cool word. Uh, it's literally numbed in the heart. Uh, Jacob fears that they're not telling the truth. And perhaps to protect himself from false hope and more grief, he just doesn't believe them. And who's experienced this? We've all experienced this, haven't we? When something sounds too good to be true, it's usually because it is. And so we're sceptical. We don't believe something because not only does it sound too good to be true, we don't want to be hurt. Perhaps hurt again by unmet hopes. We don't want to be disappointed. It's easier not to believe and not get hurt. Less painful. But Jacob comes around as the evidence stacks up. So verse 27 we read, But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I'll go and see him before I die. Upon believing his son Joseph is alive, Jacob's spirit revives. It comes back to life. Hope is a jolt to his numbed heart. This flips his scepticism on its head. I've uh, been watching uh, the third season of the crowdfunded show, The The Chosen. Anybody been watching this or seen this? Yeah? Okay. It's a show that uh, creatively follows Jesus' disciples. Uh, Episode 5 in this series gives an imaginative rendering of Jesus raising the daughter of Jairus, the synagogue's uh, ruler, from the dead. Uh, I really liked it. Uh, It cleverly uh, plays off the the faith of Jairus and the unbelief of those around him, particularly of Jairus' wife. As Jesus comes into the room, a stranger to her, an intruder, and watches in confusion and horror as she approaches her dead daughter and dares to touch her. I maybe would have had her more irate, even more physically trying to grab Jesus to pull him out of the way, get him away, because you can appreciate uh, the intrusion and the insult that it must have felt like to her at this point in her grief, right? And the anger, maybe, that she would have felt. The grief and the anger desperately, I reckon, trying to protect her heart. Which we can understand. Because, like last week, Jamie rightly observed that a parent never gets over losing their child. Because we know many who have and and don't. Their grief is totally understandable. It's expected. But how many parents do you know have received their child back from the dead? None, right? So it's hard to know how they'd react. (laughs) Perhaps something like this in the show. 
Maybe something like that. Who's the nun, though? One thing that it will do, that is having life back from the dead, is seriously to get in the way of our grief and our fear, which is the way of hope throughout the Bible. And it's anticipated here with Jacob, a man who's persuaded by those who saw his son Joseph, who who persuade him that he's alive, that he's back from the dead, so to speak, Uh, And that upon believing their testimony, Jacob finds his heart and his spirit revived. In a sense, he's brought back from the dead himself. Hope raises him to life. And into, interestingly and importantly, uh, re-engaging with God again, as we'll see. Uh, In the last couple of chapters in Genesis, we, we haven't heard much of Jacob's relationship with God. We've heard a lot of his grief and his fear, but no mention of him talking with God or God talking with him even. Almost like he's been numbed by his grief and his fear towards God. But then he believes Joseph is back from the dead, so to speak, and it ignites hope in him, it revives his spirit, and as we'll see, his relationship with God gets a jolt in the arm. And maybe that's where we're at the, at, at the moment. Maybe feeling a little flat when it comes to God, like your heart is numb. Possibly numbed by the grief and the fears that maybe we haven't honestly laid before God in lament yet. But Jacob, he gives us the... But like Jacob, God's given us the testimony of those who saw Jesus, his son, back from the dead to persuade us and to revive our hearts. Like the Apostle John who writes this, it's amazing. This is what we proclaim to you. What was at from the beginning... What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and our hands have touched concerning the word of life. And the life was revealed and we have seen and testify and announced to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. John and the other apostles testify to what they saw and heard of Jesus as the way to eternal life. A life that doesn't start when you die doesn't just start then, but a life that starts now as we believe in him, as John continues. What we have seen and heard we announce to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, To believe in what the apostles announce about Jesus is to have fellowship with them. It's to be with them. And that extends to being with God the Father and with God the Son, Jesus Christ. And this is a living hope. As the Apostle Peter says, in his great mercy, God has given us new birth, he's given us life into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A hope not just for eternal life at the end, at the end of this age, when we die, but a hope That is for us now, as the Apostle Paul says. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hopes by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. As we trust in the testimony to Jesus, God's Son, back from the dead, then we can be assured our hope in him will not disappoint us. We don't need to stay numb to protect our hearts from further pain or fear. Because God has poured out his hope, his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit 
testifies with our spirit as we believe in Jesus. If you're believing in Jesus, trusting that he rose from the dead, that is the Holy Spirit working in you. And he breathes life into our souls. He is hope in us and with us. Hope that enables us even when we're suffering grief of all kinds and of all trials to know that God is always with us is hope. So if you're feeling dry or numb in your heart towards God, perhaps holding him at arm's length in fear that maybe he'll just let you down or he'll, he'll let you suffer more, please let him revive your spirit. Listen again to the testimony of those who saw Jesus back from the dead. Can I suggest, try reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, Set aside a quiet time, some stage, maybe today, maybe in this week, just read slowly through that chapter. Pray about what's not clear to you in that chapter, but thank God for what is. And as you believe afresh in the resurrected Jesus, know that that is the Holy Spirit breathing hope back into you so that you might know God is always with you, no matter what. Which brings us to our second point, God with his people, which seems to be the promise in all God's promises. As we see a now hopeful Jacob make his way back to Egypt, or wait to Egypt for the first time with his family, and he engages with God and God with him. So we see this in chapter 46, Verse 1, so Israel, Jacob, uh, set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father. He said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Now, as you may know, God made promises to Jacob's grandfather, to Abraham, uh, Isaac's dad, and Jacob's granddad, You can read about them in previous chapters, in chapter 12 to 17. They're all throughout there of Genesis. Uh, Promises to make God uh, Abraham into a great nation. Uh, Promises to give him the descendants of the land of Canaan. Uh, Promises to bless him and bless all the world through him. And those promises are are a theme all throughout Genesis, in fact, all throughout the Bible. Uh, And God is referring to those promises here, right? Isn't he? Go to Egypt, for I'll make you a great nation there. And I will surely bring you back to this land that I promised you. But what struck me as I was reading uh, this this week is that all these promises, they depend on one central promise. And it's that God is with Jacob. Or Israel, as the text uh, shifts to calling Jacob uh, the name that God gave him, the name that comes to represent the people of God's promises, promises that have within them a core promise, and that promise is that God is with them. No matter where they are or what's happening to them, he says, I will go down with you. With you. Israel isn't to be afraid to go to Egypt because God is 
with them. Not just because God's going to make them into a great nation, that's promised, or that he's going to bring them back to the promised land, which he will, but because he will be with them in all their comings and their goings. And this seems to be the promise of all God's promises. And so it's actually the greatest blessing. God with his people. Not just that he saves them, but that he's with them. In his book, uh, God is the Gospel, uh, John Piper provocatively asks the question, would you be happy in heaven if Christ were not there? If you could be in a place with all your friends and family that you've ever loved, all the food you really like, all the activities you've ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you could possibly see, all the physical pleasures you can possibly have, and there'd be no sickness, no human conflict, no natural disasters, no more death, could you be satisfied if God wasn't there? For many, I suspect that that might be true. I hear this echoes of this, uh, sometimes at funerals, you know, where people say things like, well, at least he's in a better place. You know, at, at least she's not suffering anymore. As if the hope of eternal life is for some fantastic place, or just the absence of suffering. But the central hope of the Bible is not about what God can give us. It's about God himself. And God being with his people. As hundreds of years after Jacob and his family move to Egypt, he saves the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and he set them apart as his special people. He puts them in a place, uh, in the place, in place, the whole cultic system of priests and sacrifices in a special tent where he said that he would dwell amongst them. As he instructs Moses, so I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God's goal in saving his people has always been to dwell with them, to be with them. And this is the hope throughout all of the Bible. For all God's people, I hope that's realised through the promised Messiah, as God anticipates through the prophet Isaiah later on, when he says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. What's Emmanuel? God with us. And this promise of God with us That's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew makes this obviously clear. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph uh, in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That is rich. With Jesus, we have God with us. And by hope in Jesus, hope in this one born to the Virgin Mary, Hoping this one 
crucified, died and buried, hoping this one raised from the dead to give us eternal life. Hope fanned into flames into our hearts only by the Holy Spirit. We have God with us. Profoundly with us. And with God with us, we don't need to be afraid. As God tells Jacob back then, don't be afraid to go to Egypt. As God tells us now, and you read this in the book of Hebrews, where it says, keep your lives free from the love of money or the love of anything else or anyone else over God and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? In his book, When the Tiger Roars, Graham Cansey describes an imaginary place. It's a, a village in a picturesque forest where the people believe in a creator God and fear is not part of their culture. And this impacts on their whole way of life, particularly on the way that they relate to each other. And they have a very compassionate view of the world. And others who stumble into their village, they are, they're just so impressed and moved by no fear, a life of no fear, they end up staying. But things change. More and more people who are impacted by fear stumble into this village and begin to teach fear as an important thing for protecting you from danger. And so little by little, the culture begins to change. There's less trust in relationships. Justice becomes all about punishment. And significantly, violence starts to happen. And eventually, the place collapses under the weight of fear and violence. It's an allegory about fear. About how fear is a form of self-protection that's ultimately just counterproductive. It, It might seem wise... You know, to be wary and guarded if we've been hurt or disappointed or betrayed, it seems like a natural thing to do, even a smart thing. But it only ends up hurting us more. Fear promises to protect our lives, but in fact it shuts us off from living life to the full. Which is to live in hope. But only in sure hope. And there's, and there's no one and nothing that can promise such hope than God. Indeed, by the Holy Spirit, we have the love of God poured into our hearts. And elsewhere, the Bible wonderfully tells us, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The wonderful promise of believing in Jesus is that the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, God lives in us and we in God. God is profoundly with us and as such we can know and rely on his love for us. A love which drives our fear. Particularly the fear of thinking that God is against us. That the bad things in life are him punishing us for something. Or that he's abandoned us because we're so bad and nasty and grotty and not worth the effort. That can't be the case. Because if we believe Jesus rose from the dead for us, then by the Holy Spirit, God is intimately and always with us. And so to enjoy that promise and that reality, 
I think the Bible would encourage us to number the blessings that we already have in Christ. Which brings us to the third point, numbering God's blessings. As the story in Genesis uh, pauses for a bit, uh, you'll be happy to know that I didn't get uh, Assy to read the rest of this passage, which is a list of names, uh, but it runs through a list of Jacob's sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters, all those who went to Egypt, starting at verse 8 with his firstborn Reuben and his family and running through to the rest of his 12 sons and their families to verse 27. Now, uh, without looking at the Bible, who knows their names? Anyone want to have a crack? Reuben, at least one. Simeon, nice one. Judah, Asher, Gad, Dan, Levi, Benjamin, Joseph, Manasseh, yep, Ephraim, Zebulun, Nephtali, oh, that's 13. That's because, uh, yeah, Ephraim and Manasseh are one. Yep. <laughs> so there you go. Well done. Congratulations. <laughs> now, don't worry. We're not going to go through all that passage. Um, but it's interesting to think why this list is placed here in Genesis uh, and that we're told the number of them there in verse 27. It's um, 70. So the members of Jacob's family which went to Egypt were 70 in all. The number seven is significant in the Bible. It's the number of completion or the ideal. God made the heavens and the earth in seven days, of course, after all. So this list of 70 might represent the nation of Israel in miniature as the ideal and complete number. And in so doing, it anticipates God making Israel into a great nation, as he promised. Which, if that's the case, I reckon this list of names does a couple of things. Firstly, it forces us to slow down. Slow down, number all these children of promise as blessings of what God has already come good on. And as we've seen the promise in all God's promise of God being with his people, perhaps then as we slow down and number all the promises and blessings God's come good on, we might see and savour that great reality more in Jesus, that God is with us. We might see and savour that God is truly with us and will never leave us. So I thought, to that end, it might be worth counting our blessings together in Christ now. Last week, you'll have noticed uh, some slips of paper and pens on your seats. <laughs> like last week, uh, they're here today as well. And I thought that today, perhaps, even with some of the griefs and fears still fresh in our minds from last week, that we write down some of the blessings that are ours in Jesus, to slow down and number them so that we might savour the great promise and reality in Jesus that God is truly with us now and always. So let's spend the next uh, couple of minutes silently reading a section of uh, Ephesians and numbering the blessings mentioned there that uh, we currently have in Jesus. If that's too small uh, for you, I apologise Open up your own Bible. Uh, it's Ephesians chapter 1. But we'll just spend the next few minutes uh, reflecting on the blessings that we have in Christ that are mentioned in these passages. Write them down. Number them. And appreciate them and thank God for them.